At Granger, we're for the ones who specialize in saving the day and for the ones who've mastered the art of keeping business moving. We offer industrial-grade supplies for every industry with same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders, all backed by real people ready to help. So you can get the right answers and products right when you need them. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Dose to Leadership Podcast, episode 227. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership Podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, welcome to the show. Richard Ryerson here. Thank you for tuning in today. I appreciate all your support. If you're brand new to the show, welcome. This is the show where we talk about leadership. We introduce leaders from all walks of life. We hear their stories. We hear about their journey. We hear about their tactics, their techniques from people all different types, military leaders, faith-based leaders, CEOs, business leaders, everyday folks like you and I. Because leadership is for all of us, every single one of us. We all have the opportunity to become better leaders. You know, the show isn't going to teach you or talk to you how to become a Fortune 500 CEO because that is not what leadership is all about. Certainly leadership is required in those situations, but leadership is for all of us. I say this at the beginning of every show. Remember, there's somebody right now, every single one of us, at least one person is looking to you for influence and guidance. At least one person, and it's probably more than that, but it's true. Everybody has somebody Someone that's looking to us for influence and guidance. And so therefore, it's in our interest to learn all we can about leadership, to become the best leaders that we can become because it is for everybody. And the good news is all you have to do is to opt in, to opt in towards intentionality and start striving towards choosing to become a better leader. And what can you do today, starting today, to set yourself out to become, I'm going to start the path of becoming a better leader. Start adding value to everybody you come in contact with. That is the secret sauce to gaining influence, is adding value to other people's lives. Sounds easy in principle, but my gosh, it's so hard to do because we got to take care of ourselves. I get that. And this isn't about service to the point where you're not taking care of yourself, but it really is about adding value to somebody else's life and really not expecting anything in return. And the way the universe works, you get all your wants, your needs met exponentially may not come at the timing that you want, but it will come. And so this show, hopefully, is one of the resources that you can use, a free resource to help you in your leadership journey. If you do find value in the show, I would so much appreciate it if you took the time to leave a rating and review, subscribe to the show on your mobile device, take it with you wherever you go when you're working out, but leave that rating and review. It takes just a few minutes on iTunes or Stitcher, and it does so much to the visibility of the show. It helps with the algorithm, whatever Apple does and all their magic, but it Every time you leave that rating and review or you get a subscription, it's, it boosts it visibility up so when people open up iTunes, they can see it front and center. It's easier to find anyway. So I would be so appreciative if you left that rating and review. And drop me a line. Let me know what you think about the show, Richard at doseofleadership.com or go to my website, doseofleadership.com and go to the contact page, fill out the form. 
let me know where you're at. And also, one other favor, I just relaunched richardryerson.com. been working on it for a long time. I finally launched it. Still little tweaks, but it's about 98% there. But it's a great um, website if you want to figure out more about what I do. Dose of Leadership doesn't do a very good job of saying exactly what I do, but richardryerson.com, my brand, it shows exactly what I do from masterminds to coaching to speaking, my online course, um, Legacy Leader Blueprint, all of that is on there on richardryerson.com, and I would be so appreciative if you took a time to visit it, check out all the resources there, and drop me a line, let me know what you think, and forward it on to other people too. Let them know what I do in terms of leadership, speaking, coaching, and training. Much obliged with that as well. Okay, let's get to the guest today. So happy to have Kate Curran on the show. She was referred to me to my friend and former mastermind member, Marie Granieri. Marie, thank you so much. Shout out to you. Um, Marie is a, a leader in her own right. Has taught me a lot of insight and was such a pleasure to have in my uh, mastermind class that we did, I don't know, six, seven, eight months ago. And she introduced me to Kate. And Kate is the founder of School the World. And um, Kate has a background as a, as an executive, you know, ten years with General Electric, as vice president of external affairs for GE Money. She designed GE's first large community reinvestment act program, overseeing more than a hundred million in community development investments and grants. And as she talks about in this show, in this interview, you know, she got to a point in her forties, I believe. And she said, you know, there's got to be more to life than this. And she stepped on her own. She listened to that inner voice. And she took that leap, not kind of suspending the belief in how it was going to get done, but she had this passion to kind of build schools in impoverished areas. And she did it. And she's doing it. She's making it happen. And one thing, I love bringing people on the show, people that are, I love shining the light on people who are shining the light on the world. And Kate certainly fits that that mold. I'll leave it to her to let you tell the story in this interview, but the thing I want you to just kind of take away is realize that all of us have the opportunity to put huge dents in this universe. If we listen to that inner voice, we listen to that calling. I'm a huge believer in that. You've heard me talk about Stephen Pressfield's The War of Art on this show. I do believe that, you know, God, the angels, the muse, whoever you want to put it, some force puts something on your heart for you to go forward, to, to, to do. It's a dream. And the bigger that dream, the more the resistance is going to be trying to prevent you or tell you that you can't do it. Well, Kate fought it, and she started, and she's making things happen. She's making huge dents in the universe, and um, I'll leave it to her to kind of tell the story. But it was just a privilege to have her on the show, to hear her leadership philosophy, how she kind of overcame fear, um, overcame the the doubts, and uh, started um, making an impact. And so it's a great conversation. So without further ado, here's Kate Curran. From School to World. Well, Kate, what an honor to have you on the show. I'm excited to talk to you. Welcome to Dose of Leadership. Thank you so much, Richard. I'm delighted to be here. You know, I'm always fascinated by people who actually, you know, we do, there's a lot of talk in the world, you know, everybody does a lot of talking and self included and sit there and think, God, what can I do to make a dent in the universe? And I find that when I'm looking at making the dent in the universe, it seems to be so self-centered and I look at people like you and you get there and you got school the world and the things that you're doing you're obviously making a dent so first of all thank you for all the contributions that you're doing out there but uh, tell tell me a little bit about how you got involved or why you became passionate about uh, nonprofits and helping and starting school the world 
Well, I was raised in a large um, family in Bridgeport, Connecticut. I'm the fifth of six children. My my father was pretty much a public servant his entire life, starting with World War II. He was a fighter pilot in World War II and actually mayor of Bridgeport when I was a young child and then finally a, a judge for the last 30 years of his life. My mother was the one who believed there was no greater honor in life than public service. She was actually the first in her family to graduate from college in the 1940s. And my father was actually, um, grew up very poor. And, um, but because of the GI Bill, was able to come home from the war and get through both college and law school. Mm-hmm. So they raised us really with... Um, very strong values of faith, family, and public service. But first, you're going to get the best education we can possibly give you. They both really believed in the power of education. So so that's really, those are the roots of it. That's where it started. All of my siblings are very involved in public service in one way or another to this day. Um, but I was moving along in a very conventional way. I was a very highly motivated, highly compensated attorney and executive at GE when suddenly my brother died and both of my parents died the following year. Oh man. Oh man. It was, it was a very tough time. Um, very tough few years. And, you know, my brother's death was a kind of a brutal reminder that we don't all get all the time in the world to do the things that we want to do and be the people we want to be. And then suddenly here I was looking at my parents' deaths and what were really huge celebrations of, you know, what Tom Brokaw labeled greatest generation lives. And it was true, really. You couldn't help but stand back and say, wow, these were, these were lives really well lived. Yeah. And they were, they were about service. That generation was really about selflessness and service to others. And, you know, as if that wouldn't be enough to have me reflecting, my mother's last words, her last coherent words, were actually, I've had a great life. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it was really, was mind-blowing. And it, um, those words are really her last gift to me, I think, because they are what set me on the path that, that, ended up launching School of the World. I, you know, I didn't have any answers, but I knew the path that I was on was not it. And so I actually resigned from my job wow. and began to travel as a way to rejuvenate and reflect on what does that mean? What is a great life? What does that look like? Is a good life good enough? And it took me a few continents and... A lot of time, but I think I did eventually get there. And in the end, the answer wasn't that different than um, my parents' answer, I think, to what is a great life. I started in Argentina and, you know, standing in the Glaciers National Park in Patagonia, couldn't help but think, oh, my God, this is really an amazing world. And there has to be something out there that's much bigger than all of us. And um, 
from there went on to Normandy in France, where my father's brother was buried. And you can't possibly visit Normandy, the beaches. You can't possibly do that without being deeply affected by the sacrifices that other people have made. The selflessness, again, um, so that we could all live the lives that we are living. And finally, it was really in experiences in places like Tanzania and Zambia, where there are villages that kids are where the kids are walking through crocodile-infested waters to get to school every day. Yeah, and there are classrooms with twelve kids sharing one pencil. And so at the end, I realized, you know, I have the ability and the power and the responsibility to do something about this. I can do it. And I can certainly sacrifice a little bit to do that. And education is really the solution, the best solution. We certainly saw how the GI Bill changed the world. You know, that's amazing. I, I, Joe, I'm just awestruck by that story because it's so true. And then we're reminded, and you're right. So you, you kind of went, how old were you when, when your mother died? I mean, can I ask what? I think I was 44. I was, when I started School of the World, I was 45. So here you are, and your mother's death was kind of the catalyst, I guess, of, of kind of the self-discovery, I guess. I mean, it was almost at the point, if I'm hearing you correctly, up to 44, I mean, the self-awareness or the dream wasn't even associated how do I even phrase this? It wasn't associated with this. The way you're thinking big, that wasn't even. No. The thinking big wasn't even there. I can't even articulate it. I was it. not thinking that big. Yeah. No. Yeah. I was, when I, you know, when I left GE, I knew I would do something in service. Um, but I think I thought I can afford to be off for a month and I can afford, um, maybe I can live on half. <laughs> of what I'm making now. And I think I went four years without any income and I'm still not anywhere near half of what I was making then. So I, I definitely, and I definitely did not plan on, you know, starting something and traveling to places like Guatemala and Honduras by myself. And I, I definitely, or Zambia even, um, it was definitely not in the plan. You know, I think that's what's so funny about life. I, I can't tell you how many times that theme has come up in these conversations. It's like, well, you know, I didn't plan on being here. I had no idea. It's almost like you can plan your life all you want, but then God has a different plan for you. And it's almost like, I don't know, that your mother telling you had this great life and you realizing, man, what, is, what does it mean to have a great life? Right. And I, you know, I think I look and um, actually I'm realizing I was maybe more like 43, 42, 43 when my mother died. And um, it just took a while to you know, make the exit and, um, and then to start traveling. But my life wasn't real. It definitely was not where I had, um, expected it to be. So it really was sitting down and saying, what am I going to do with the rest of my life now? What was the expectation? I'm interested about that. What, what, what was the dream or the expectation? I think I expected to live a very conventional life, very similar to my mother's with a large family and many children, not to be, a you know, in a kind of a high powered career as a single woman. Um, and so it really, you know, I don't know. Have you read the um, letter that Sheryl Sandberg put out about the loss of her husband? Yes, I did. It was beautiful, really mm -hmm. beautiful. And when she talked about plan B, you know, this is not um, plan A, she said. And 
there will be, there'll never be a new normal in her case, but she's going to kick the SHIT out of plan B. I thought it was really beautiful. Yeah. Um, and I guess that's kind of how I was looking at it. I'm, I'm going to live my life, the rest of my life very differently. Um, than the way I have been living it in the past. And my mother was an incredibly selfless person. She had this tremendous spirit of generosity. And that's really what I strive for. So I'm curious about how, okay, so you, I love how you say, okay, wait, it's all about education. Listen, how am I going to create a place? How am I going to build schools in these impoverished areas? I mean, when did that come to you? And I don't even, I wouldn't even know where to begin. So did, did that kind of strike you? Did you instantly know what you needed to do? Or you said, how am I going to get this done? I just can't imagine myself in that situation. Um, I think I, you know, I did have the benefit. I think I've heard several people on your show say this. You look back and in hindsight, everything looks like it made sense. Right. Everything looks like you were on a plan. And I certainly, um, my experience at GE and the relationships that I formed at GE were critical and uh, helping me get started. The, the kind of business experience and the way that I approach things and actually the, the, the relationships too. So um, we, I chose to start in Central America. You know, that's really our backyard. Um, and the need is obviously quite tremendous there. If there's anything about the border crisis that was helpful to us, it was that it, it brought home just how desperate the circumstances are in, in some of these countries. You know, we're not a political organization or a humanitarian organization, but um, I think everyone would agree that the, the problem is not the children. Yeah. The problem is the countries they're coming from. And if they had, if they're, if they had educational systems that were working at all, we would be, we would all be much better off. These parents do not want to send or take their children on these dangerous journeys. A lot of them do not want to leave themselves. They, they love their countries, but the circumstances are that desperate. And we know with education that education improves health. We know it improves income. We know it delays the age of marriage, reduces the number of children a girl will have. It actually reduces crime, improves right. you know, civic participation. It does all of these things. And the other um, thing about Central America was that I had relationships there. GE had a joint venture mm. in Central America, and they offered to help me get started. And obviously, as a business person, I understood the tactical advantage of um, the proximity and the ease and an expensive nature of getting, you know, to Guatemala versus someplace in Africa. Right. Right. So that's how I got started. And I went and I met with a mayor out in the rural area. And he said, I'll tell you what, I'll pay for half. You pay for half. And of a school and I said I love the way you think and that became kind of the foundation of our model which was which is a public private partnership and we always require the mayors to pay 50% of the infrastructure costs or we don't work there. So do the mayors are they looking for um well that that's that's my big the thing that can glaring to me I can imagine the biggest challenge is like okay so I go to Guatemala I go to Honduras and I'm trying to open up a school is the challenge 
is, is the government get in the way? I mean, I, I love the idea that you can locally get the mayor, but could, yeah. the, could the national we, government so get so in I the very way? Very intentionally, I did, I did know and believe that we had to get results very quickly. And we had to have um, something to talk about very quickly. And so we kept a very low profile. Other than with mayors, we, we basically stayed away from the national government and the Ministry of Education until I think we had like five schools. Um, and then you, you really can't avoid it anymore. But these basically are situations where, um, in the beginning at least, there technically is a school already, but there's no school building. Gotcha. gotcha. And there may be a teacher, but they're not trained, and there are no books and so the very first place we went, I saw it was night. It was at the top of a mountain. It was dark and it was windy and raining. And the school was like four pieces of tin with a dirt floor, tree trunks for chairs for the kids to sit on. It was freezing. I was lasting like five minutes. And I was like, oh, my God, I need a blanket. And I just couldn't believe that anyone expected children to learn this way under these circumstances. So... You know, that made it easy. And from there, we also started to work with schools where there might be, you know, 150 kids, but only three classrooms. So half the kids are in environments like that. Um, and the other half are in the three classrooms. And so what we do is we start with the community and we require the community to donate the land and all of the unskilled labor. And... The mayor, of course, pays for 50% of the infrastructure costs. It's great um, politics for him. All politics is local, right? Right. And we then require the community to um, participate in parent trainings every other week. And if you can believe this, the average participation rate is around 68% that are coming every other week, which is phenomenal. And they learn things like that they are the first educators. They may not be able to know how to um, read or write and in most cases even sign their own name, but they can still help their children learn just by supporting their education, ask them about school today, how was school today, what did you learn today? We help them understand their rights, um, that they have a right to go to the school and ask the teacher how their child is doing, that if the teacher is not coming. They have a right to do something about that. We also ask them to contribute money for books because we want this program to be sustainable and we want them to take ownership. We think it's going to be much more successful if the parents own it. And it's really hard sometimes to ask people who are so poor to accept money from people who are so poor. They typically, 100% of these parents give. They typically give a dollar to a dollar fifty per child, which for them may mean they don't eat for two days or three days. It may mean they don't have shoes. And they actually take it so seriously. They write it up in something called the Book of Acts as almost like legislation. And then they come up to sign it one by one, each parent. But the vast majority of them are unable to sign their own name. So they put their thumb in an ink yeah. pad and give their thumbprint as their promise to pay a dollar or a dollar fifty so that their children can learn how to read. It's a remarkable, yeah, really remarkable just, thing. 
I'm just stunned by the whole, um, or impressed by the whole kind of process. And I, I get the kind of philosophy, okay, I'm going to build a school. Now I've got something tangible. i got something they can see. Right. You're kind of doing it under the radar outside of the, you're just kind of asking for forgiveness instead of permission. You know, I love that kind of philosophy, right? I mean, let's just, we're just right. going to go do it and we're getting with this local mayor. How do the teachers continue to get paid? So the government is paying the teachers. These are government teachers, but they're not trained and they have no resources. So that is another element of our program. We take the teachers and we put them through um, two years of teacher training, both in the classroom and group training together with a, you know, a group of 40 to 50 teachers. We've put um, 150 teachers through training now. It's amazing. And you're doing all this through uh, volunteer work and fundraising. I mean, just do you spend most of your time trying to find resources and money and volunteers? I mean, what takes up the bulk of your day? You know, I, I actually dedicated the first few years. Um, we were fortunate to have funding from USAID very early on. And it was because their education lead really, really loved our model and fought really hard for funding for us. She's now actually the Minister of Education in the country. And um, so I've spent most of my time the first few years on perfecting the model. And I am just now starting to do more outreach. But I also developed um, a funding mechanism that we call our student service learning program. We work with students in the United States, high school students, and we um, inspire them to get involved, to learn about the country, the issues, social justice, but also to raise the money to build the school. And then they come down for a week and they spend the week in the community every day, side by side, with um, the parents and the kids and the teachers, and they finish the build. They paint the school, they lay the concrete patio, they might finish the floors. They spend time teaching the kids. They actually follow a mother or father around for half a day to learn about how they live and what their life is like. And this program is um, its actually 50% of our revenue now. And it funds not only the school building, but it funds at least for some period of time, you know, the wraparound programming. And it's at the same time transformative for the young Americans, these young high school students that come with us. It's amazing. We do a debrief every night with the kids. And I think maybe 25 to 30% of them are coming back for a second and third year. That's how how much they love it. But when you hear these kids say, I'll never ask for another snow day again. <laughs> I, you know, I was complaining about going to an all girls school and I realized that these girls would love to be in school. They would kill for our school. Or I, I the, the first year I'll never forget hearing this young woman say, you know, I thought this was so cool before that I had the power to do this. But now I'm realizing right now that like with the power, comes the responsibility to do it. I'm like blown away when I hear these that young is, kids crazy. say crazy. stuff like this. And it's amazing. In a week, they're transformed. And when you think about the stage of their lives that they're at, the number of them coming back, the number of them coming in to volunteer in the office. And we've taken maybe 200 kids in just the last three years, mostly from New England and really hope to spread this program throughout the country because it's, it's, it's wonderful for everyone all the way around. Um, 
and it's it's just really very special. But when you think about the fact that they're 15, 16, 17, developing this sense of gratitude and inspiration that, you know, I finally got to at 40-something. <laughs> right. And you think about how you – know, we call them world changers. And you think about what they have ahead of them and what they're all going to be doing. It's just fantastic. I'm inspired by them. Well, it's inspiring to hear that. I can imagine. And I'm, I'm curious to see, uh, you know, if we – can keep the momentum going, Mike. I, I can imagine my fear. I'm trying to put myself in your shoes, and I'm trying to think of the fears and the things that could could derail it. You know, what would? How do I keep the momentum going so it becomes so just starts to snowball and just to take over? Because you see all these. I mean, there's tons of charitable organizations out there, and some right. some of them never take off, and some of them get so bureaucratic. And right. So what do we do? I mean, how do, how do we sustain it? How do we? get to the point where it becomes this un- unstoppable force well, we, we without a doubt need to continue to grow our financial resources um that is absolutely critical we but i do think that the training that again this goes back to the training that i had at ge has helped enormously we're extremely efficient we've you know in five years we've built 36 schools yeah. we have 1500 parents participating in these parent trainings Every other week, That's we're in two countries. Right? I know it's amazing, and they all have four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve kids. So, you know, the impact, the ripple effect is enormous. And um, I think we've created now over two hundred classroom libraries, and again, one hundred fifty teachers through training. And we've done all of that. Our budget is still less than a million dollars a year. Wow. Um, so we've done it very, very efficiently, you know, with the public-private partnership, with requiring so much out of the municipality. It's, you know, everything I do, I, you can't work at, at GE for 10 years and not um, have a keen eye for efficiency, <laughs> you know. Imagine. So I'm always looking for ways to do things more efficiently and more cost-effective. So that has helped us accomplish an enormous amount in a short period of time. But the need is great out there. So we do need to continue to grow and we need to continue to grow our base of support and hopefully more and more, um, uh, high school students participating in spreading the word as well. What about results? Talk about the five years you've Okay. You've got five years underneath your belt. Tell me a little bit about the impact and the success that you've seen to, to, to know that it's working. Oh gosh. The first few years were really tough for me because, um, you know, the work on the ground is this is long-term work, and it takes a long time. You can build a school. Anyone can build a school, but that's not enough. Right. And you're talking about real behavior change here, and behavior change is hard. It takes a long time. But when you start to hear parents, you know, say things like, oh, this is hard. Parenting is hard. You know, maybe, maybe we shouldn't be having so many children. Or um, I didn't know before that I could go to the school and ask how my child was doing. Now I know and I go and I ask. Or the teacher wasn't here, so I called her and I asked her, where are you? I know you're supposed to be here. Then I know it's working. But um, the best really day for me in the last five years was learning that at one of our first schools where... Um, there were, when we started, there were probably only 
probably only 15% of the kids that had started in first grade there were actually still in school by fifth grade. So like 85% are gone by fourth grade. Wow. Yeah. Then that's very typical in rural Guatemala where we're working. Now, this is the, this is the, these are really difficult circumstances. This is the poorest of the poor. And these are, you know, hard places for teachers. But, um, I had a teacher come up to me and she said, Kate, you're not going to believe it, but I have, you know, 19 kids in sixth grade this year, fifth, you know, 18 kids in fifth grade. Essentially, the fifth and sixth grade enrollment was up 200%, and the dropout rate was down to zero, wow. which was incredible, remarkable. You know, those are, that's really what we're striving for, is to keep these kids, get them in school, keep them in school, help them finish primary school with the ability to read, write, and do basic math, because, you know, the proof is there, the evidence is there. If you can teach a child how to read, you've exponentially improved their chances in life. And you've given them the tools to help themselves from there forward. Um, you'll also see things like one of our first schools, uh, it was so hard. When we first started there, the women were not even allowed to come to the meeting. Really? Yes. The women not allowed to participate. It was a very difficult community. Um, lots of problems with the teacher, the school director. His father was the local supervisor for the Ministry of Education and just a real struggle. And I went there recently for the first time in a couple of years, and I, I could not believe it. There were five classrooms full of kids. There were five teachers. The, there were kids who told us they were traveling. They were walking from other villages because they heard about this school, and they heard that it was a great school, and they wanted to, to be able to go there and learn and most amazing to me, well, two things that were the most amazing to me was, one, the parents said, yep, we had two teachers last year that we didn't like. And these are mothers at this point and saying, but we got rid of them. We didn't uh, like them, so we got rid of them, which is amazing. Yeah. These, are, these are parents who were so fearful before. And, but most amazing to me was the first grade classroom was full of girls who were raising their hands and shouting out answers to the it. teacher. I was like, oh, my God, the change here is just incredible, absolutely incredible. So those are the types of, um, you know, the, the types of changes that we're seeing. I love it takes that. a long time, but it's really, it's, it's change is going to last. Well, it'll be interesting to see if it keep, particularly if the momentum keeps going, you know, how different will even just that local community be in 10 years, 15 years, you know what I mean? Right. And eventually, you know, and, and who who's going to be the... What's exciting is like who's going to be the kind of up and coming leader that could possibly change Honduras or Guatemala. You know what I mean? That's the potential right. that it can be. Right. And you see kids. I mean, in the beginning, I knew kids individually, and I actually go back and watch those kids at their school to see how they're doing. And there's one who definitely, right early on, I was like, oh, he's the mayor. <laughs> he's going to be the mayor. <laughs> so it is, it is, you can see communities change. I mean, I see it already in five years people actually move into a community it's just like here it's really really funny um but when you go back in the one where i mentioned where the dropout rate's down to zero and all these kids are you know they're growing fifth and sixth grade the whole psyche of the community has changed that's all it's really totally different it's a different place as it gets more exposure from the like the 
the national governor or even or even the state government there i mean do you fear that them kind of maybe squashing the process or that would be my fear no um i don't i think at least not not yet <laughs> not right now um have they acknowledged the success i mean have, have they looked at it and said wow this is great i mean have you had that kind of at a higher level outside of the local community we have with the with the minister you know, in Guatemala City at a national level, because again, because she's the one that recognized us early on. Um, beyond that, we still kind of keep a low profile because actually my, my bigger concern would be um, they have very strong teachers unions. And so, you know, educating parents about their rights and having parents take action is, um, it's, it's a challenge. It's a challenge for teachers. Um, usually when, you know, when our parents do begin to take action, there's a lot of pushback at the local level, right. a lot of pressure on the parents. Um, but we've also watched those local officials become transformed as well. I mean, I was in a community recently where that happened and the local ministry of education official was really angry at the community, put a lot of pressure on them. And here we were two years later, dedicating a playground as, as an award for the parent participation. And he spoke at the dedication and he spoke about school world and how in awe he was of our community development impact, how the school had just become the engine for the community and how um, there was serious discussion in the um, municipality and, and department about bringing electricity and water to this community as a result. So that, you know, that's real change. Yeah, that is. Um, it, is. it is. I mean, it's hard. It's hard getting there. <laughs> it's not easy, but it is real change. So I don't, you know, I do believe even the, even our philosophy is that all children love to learn. All, all children are capable of learning. All parents want a better life for their children. And all teachers would rather see kids, children achieve. Um, and I think that the vast majority can be brought around once they start to see positive things you know when you make their circumstances better as well by giving them a school building that they can teach in by giving them the tools that they need um you know it really changes their outlook and experience as well well i'm just amazed and humbled at, at, at what you've accomplished i mean it really has i mean in the, how you started this conversation you know there's more to life than than you know what it's kind of the rat race of what we're achieving success and I'm using success in air quotes and in shifting our lives towards one of significance. And you certainly are a great role, role model for that. Thank you. And uh, I appreciate Thanks, I've had a lot of help along the way. What characteristic would you say in yourself from a leadership perspective? I mean, you mentioned a lot of the kind of the as GE being a great training ground for this type of work now, but what, individual characteristic do you think has contributed to your success more than any other? Um, it's funny because listening to your podcast, you mentioned this a lot, but without a doubt, tenacity. Tenacity. Yeah. Yeah. You, you have to be tenacious. You have to be persistent. You have to, you know, um, 
you have to keep going in the face of really tough circumstances. And I guess you'd also say you have to be able to tolerate uncertainty yeah. and, amb- yeah. and ambiguity because so much is uncertain in the beginning. So much of what you're doing is uncertain. I mean, the very beginning, we didn't even have, you couldn't um, get a bank account in the country and without being, you know, going through this long legal registration process. And we actually, I used to give the money directly to the communities. And that was, of course, very high risk. Um, We actually had a community where I had given them the funds for the school. It's a great development tool. They have to open up their first bank account. But it's a lot of uncertainty. It was a lot of uncertainty for me. And within like 10 days of doing this, they were completely wiped out by the worst storm in 70 years in the country. And nobody could even get to them. And then it was, you know, determined that the entire community was going to have to be relocated. Wow. And all this time is going by and I'm thinking, oh my God, <laughs> you know, and finally we, um, we had to talk to them after a year and say, we have to put that money to use and we will, you will be first in line as soon as you're ready. And, you know, they, they not only, and this is a place where people were dying. Uh, I think that the infant mortality rate that year was like 30% um, after the storm. And they not only completely understood, but they gave back every single penny. Wow. Every single penny. You know, that really kind of shores up your faith and and people. Well, you're, you're like, I don't know. I'm almost speechless because I just, you know, I think about all the things, you know, that we could be doing. And again, I, as I mentioned, we do a lot of talking, but you're, you're actually, you know, part of the goal of this show is to shine a light on people, to shine a light on the world. And you're definitely doing it. And I appreciate all your efforts. How can people help and get involved and support School to World? Um, there are a number of things they can do. They can go online to learn more at schoolotheworld.org. If you are interested in bringing this student service learning experience to your children, your classroom, your community. You can contact me. Uh, there's inf- more information about it on the website, but you can contact me directly at kate at schooltheworld.org. You can follow us on social media to get regular updates. And if there's anyone listening out there who really wants to help us make a difference, again, please contact me. We need foremost financial support, but we also value people's talents and ideas. I have links to all this on the post. And as we wrap up, I always ask that fun question about if I'm always curious who people look up to, who their heroes are, who they love to spend a lot of time with. If you had that ultimate night where you could spend with five people, alive or dead, had this great dinner party, who would those people be? Richard, you're not going to believe this, but I used to love to host dinner parties. Did you? And I once hosted a dinner party, large dinner party with a theme of guess who's coming to dinner. (laughs) And I asked everyone to bring their ideal dinner party list. Eight people, I said, dead or alive. Wow. And it was one of the best parties ever. People still talk about it. That's awesome. And... Because I think after working so hard, I now understand the importance of fun and play 
even more. I will tell you who the list was, who my list was then. Okay. And it was, or at least the ones I can remember quickly. It was Dennis Leary and Maureen Dowd. All right. You can imagine the two of them yeah. going at each other. Yeah. And for me at the time, dinner parties were all about the mix of people. Right, right. And Tim Russert, what a fun mediator he would be with yeah. the two of them. Catherine Hepburn, who I thought would just cut through it all. And yeah, yeah. Be lots of fun. And I think I had Gregory Peck in there as someone oh so handsome to mm -hmm. add to the mix. Um, those are the ones I can remember. And I, as I was thinking about it today, I thought, okay, maybe, maybe, maybe I could trade Gregory Peck for Fred Rogers because Mr. Rogers. Right. I, love, I love his ideas about children and learning and play. So he would be a wonderful guest today, I think, that I think about. That's it's a great um, – it's a great dinner party. You that is it a great time. dinner party. Well, yeah. I'd, well, I just love this list. I love asking this question because it just. It does. It's kind of fun to see who you try to imagine what it would be like, but it, it gives insight right. to the person too. But Right. Um, I mean, this was a wonderful party. It was really quite moving for everybody to see um, who everyone came up with. And there were some common themes. It was really very interesting. So what, how did you, how do you run that party? Is it just like you, you, you ask everybody to share their list and why is that, is that really the, yeah, the sense we of it? Did yeah. that like over dessert at, toward the end. So we had, you know, typical hors d'oeuvres, cocktail parties and a sit down dinner. And I, at the time lived in a beautiful townhouse overlooking the salt marsh and the Harbor. And it was a fabulous setting. And so I think over dessert or at the end is when we did it. How fun. It was really fun, really fun. So, and um, it, it really, I think it, it, it just the process for everybody of thinking about it inspired them. Yeah. I always find it amazing that uh, in a large measure, people invariably say a mother or a father or a grandfather or something like that or grandmother. Oh, really? And um, I found that theme a lot when I asked that question on the show. Uh-huh. I would definitely love, I mean, I, I saw a post recently about interview your parents. Um, and I thought, oh, I wish I had done that. You know, there are definitely things you'd love to ask your parents that you didn't. I know, when they right? Were alive. And you Particularly, don't... you know, like about the war. My father didn't talk about it very much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I'd love to ask questions today. Yeah. Well, guys, you're um, one of the great ones out there, and I appreciate all that you're doing. And it was so I'm so appreciative that you came on the show and shared your story with us. And um, I, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoy your show. I think it's terrific. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership ebook, a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com.